Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello and welcome to Whores Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. If you're a regular listener of our show, you probably already know how much we love to add little bits of trivia and fun little facts to our discussions when we're talking about horror movies. You may also be familiar with our epic trivia battles where Mindy and I go head to head in a battle of wits or dimwits. Good one. Good one. (laughs) While Spencer quizzes us on our horror movie knowledge. Or lack thereof, or just Sharon yelling at me as she's ultra competitive. I don't yell. Do I yell? (laughs) Do you yell? I mean, I know I yell. How much time do you have? But do I yell during trivia? Whatever. That's. Don't answer the question. I think the your husband slash our editor's response was pretty much all we needed to say about that. Anyway, go continue, please, Sharon. (sighs) Thanks. I feel very supported. Um, <laughs> we love you. Um, all right. Well, true, true, true. I might yell a bit and I am competitive. Yes. Um, but, you know, our trivia episodes are basically just Mindy and I sipping beers and making fools out of ourselves by demonstrating how much we don't know. Anyways, I wanted to do an entire episode of little known facts involving some of our favorite horror movies and hopefully some of your favorites too. So let's get started with a movie that has a much anticipated fifth film in the franchise coming out next year. We're going to start with Scream from 1996. Ah! Oh, oh, the movie. Oh. All right. Horrible joke. Horrible joke. It's all right. It's all right. While filming Scream, the actors were never allowed to see the man who voices Ghostface, played by Roger L. Jackson. Director Wes Craven thought it would make their performances more realistic if Jackson would hide on set and actually make the phone calls during the filming of the scenes. The producers had originally intended to use Roger Jackson's voice only as a placeholder, dubbing it over during post-production, but decided that Jackson's contribution was perfect and kept it. Wes Craven described it as an intelligent and evil voice that would become irreplaceable to the franchise. By the way, speaking of intelligent and evil, Roger L. Jackson does the voice of Mojo Jojo from the Powerpuff Girls. Yay! Mojo Jojo. <laughs> um, and while filming the opening scene, Drew Barrymore accidentally called 911 a number of times, <laughs> much Wow. All right. Really hope people didn't have their volume up too loud on that one. Um, Much to the confusion of the 911 operators and the agitation of local authorities. As it turned out, Scream prop master J.P. Jones had forgotten to unplug (gasps) the prop phone, well, a real phone that was used as a prop. He forgot to unplug the phone that Drew was using. Uh, Jones said Drew started dialing 911, screaming, hanging up. 911, screaming, hanging up. We're in the middle of the take, and all of a sudden the phone starts ringing, and we're like, what's going on? Why is the phone ringing? And it's the police asking what the hell we're doing and why we keep calling them. It would have been amazing if the police called them back and was like, do you like scary movies? Yeah, um, speaking from personal experience, 
please do not like it when you dial 911 and hang up. I learned that the hard way as a kid. Uh, We'll just say that um, my mom was not too happy with my brother and me. And my mom actually ran into the police officer that showed up at our house uh, a few years ago. And the officer still remembers who we are. Whoa! (laughs) That's hilarious. Wow. Uh, The trials and tribulations of being a latchkey kid. Oh, my God. That is too funny. Well, Well, I'll save the whole story for another episode. I was going to say, put a pin in that for some time. Uh, But let's talk about some casting trivia. Uh, Being a favorite of screenwriter Kevin Williamson, our very own Sharon. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I read that wrong. Molly Ringwald Uh was offered the role of Sidney Prescott. And I said that because to this day, but even when she was younger, Sharon does look very much like Molly Ringwald, in my opinion. I don't think I do anymore. When I was younger, I definitely did. And I think I mentioned on the show before that um, someone actually followed me into a bathroom at a restaurant and they came out of the stall and were washing their hands next to me and they kept like looking at me. And I'm like, yes. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I followed you in here because I thought you were Molly Ringwald. (laughs) And then you were like, do you like scary movies? And then you killed her in the bathroom. Yeah, that's much less creepy. I followed you because I thought you were Molly Ringwald. I yeah. mean, I was yeah. just like, why does she keep looking at me that way? But anyways. Well, anyway, so Molly Ringwald, the actual, the actual one, not Sharon. Sorry, Sharon. Was offered the role of Sydney Prescott. Or Prescott, I should say, not like the town. But Molly turned it down, saying she'd rather not be playing a high school student at the age of 27. And I guess seeing as how she played plenty of high school students, I get her reasoning. That tracks. Uh, Wes Craven had seen Nev Campbell in Party of Five, which I loved that show, and asked her to audition for the part of Sydney. He believed she could portray a character who was innocent, but who could also realistically handle herself while dealing with the physical conflict and emotions required by the role. Nev was only 23 when Scream came out, by the way. Hot damn. Before, I wouldn't say only 23. I mean, she was playing a high schooler, so she was 23. No, but like that's a huge ass. It's become such a huge franchise and she kicked it off at age 20. That's kind of remarkable to me yeah, anyway. Yeah, yeah. Before Nev got the role, uh, Melissa Joan Hart and Brittany Murphy, among many other actresses, auditioned for the role of Sydney. Tori Spelling <laughs> and Reese Witherspoon were considered as well. Reese actually turned down an offer to audition reportedly not wanting to star in a horror movie Um, as those of us who have seen the film know there is a running joke that Tori Spelling eventually took part in which is kind of awesome Uh, Drew Barrymore was originally cast in the role but had to pull out due to scheduling conflicts but still was able to shoot all of her scenes in the first five days of production as Casey in one of our favorite horror movie opening scenes ever. Like, I think that might be my favorite line on the phone where he, she says, why do you want to know my name so much? And he goes, because I want to know who I'm looking at. Still gives me chills every time. As for Billy Loomis, the uh, boyfriend in the film... Joaquin Phoenix, it sounds like he was offered the role but turned it down. And 
I, I'm kind of glad because I can't really see Joaquin Phoenix as Billy Loomis. Skate Ulrich was ultimately cast as Billy, partly because of his resemblance to Johnny Depp, who had a significant role on, in A Nightmare on Elm Street. At around 13 minutes into the film, Billy climbs through Sydney's bedroom window, startling her, just like Glenn, a.k.a. Johnny Depp, did to Nancy in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Janine Garofalo turned down the role of Gail Weathers, but Courtney Cox approached production and pursued that role. She was interested in playing a bitch character to offset her nice friend's image of playing Monica. This image was the main reason why the producers initially refused to consider Cox for the part. Cox continued to lobby the studio as she felt she could believably play the character and her efforts ultimately succeeded. I fucking love her in that role. She's a good bitch. I mean, she's such a good bitch. She's such like no offense. I mean, that's a compliment. She she can play a really good bitchy character. And it's not what I love about her role is that it's not she's a bitch. Yeah. But then she kind of she's multidimensional and she's really good at Courtney Cox is really good at bringing that to screen. I feel like. Yes. And I don't even know if we need to say this. Obviously, like a woman who is, you know, doing her job or whatever. We're not saying she's a bitch because of like the fact that she was like a strong woman. There were some things she did to Sydney that were a little bitchy. I mean, but she was chasing her story and she was a career woman. And yes, you yes, know, yes, like, yes, yes. Yeah. She, yeah. We love you, Courtney Cox, I guess is what we're trying to say. We love you as Gail Weathers. <laughs> um, as far as directors, Wes Craven initially turned down the film. He was already busy developing a remake of The Haunting from 1963, one of Mindy's favorite movies. If you're a regular listener, you know this, and was considering distancing himself from the horror genre, I think um, specifically slasher films. He signed on to direct after Drew Barrymore agreed to appear in the film. Also, he was reportedly confronted by a 10-year-old <gasps> fan of his. Um, I do not know if this is true or not. I I hope it's true because this is awesome because I, I can just picture like a little 10-year-old going up to Wes Craven and accusing him of, quote, going soft, Amazing. end quote, and that he had more guts back in the day when he was making movies like Last House on the Left. I'm picturing like a little comic book guy from The Simpsons being like, uh, Wes, you have gone soft. <laughs> you had more guts back in the day when you were making movies like Last House on the Left. That's a horrible comic book man impersonation. That's not, it's not as good as your uh, Rodney Dangerfield, but. Oh, thank you. Spencer, do you want to attempt? Oh. Spencer, do do you could do a good comic book guy. What do I say? Uh, Wes Craven, you were going soft and okay. you had more guts. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Wes Craven, you were going a little soft. Uh, I think you had more guts back when you were making uh, Last House on the Left. Worst Craven ever. Nice. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Well, or Sharon, Nailed could you it. imagine like the two of us, like two 10-year-old little girls going up to Wes Craven and being like, you're a pussy. You've gone soft. Like that was my other thought. That would be really no. We funny. would just be like, uh, you remember that movie you made, Nightmare on Elm Street, <laughs> um, and Freddy? Yeah, that was really scary. We liked we lo- it. We like that movie. Yeah. <laughs> um. Anyways, where I want to know I? where that ten-year-old kid is now. Right. Uh. So supposedly, though, that confrontation 
push Craven over the edge, and he called the people at Miramax and agreed to do Scream. The Haunting was ultimately remade, much to Mindy's dismay, and came out three years after Scream and was directed by Jan DeMont, who directed Speed and Twister. Uh, Craven really, really made a wonderful decision <laughs> by choosing Scream over The Haunting remake. I, I will say that. Uh, finally, the Scream franchise has a unique distinction. It's the only horror franchise in which all the main characters survive all the films. Sydney, Dewey, and Gale are the only characters that have managed to survive all seven Ghostface killers. In Friday the 13th, the characters rotate out, so there's no consistent main survivor. And in Halloween, Laurie Strode survives, but she's the only one, making her a prime example of the lone survivor trope. Will all three characters survive Scream 5, though? Place your bets now, and I'm calling it. I don't know if anyone else has come up with this theory, but I am going to say that Sydney is the killer in this one, because after surviving so much trauma, maybe she's just snapped. Or maybe she'll pose as the killer after finding out who it really is and like scare the fuck out of the killer herself and end up getting the last stab, if you will. Maybe. All I know is if she dies in the opening, I'm leaving the theater or my living room, whichever, depending on where we'll be able to watch it. They won't do that. That that I'm pretty sure of. That I will I will place bets and say they're not going to do that. They better fucking not. That's all I'm saying. All right, well. <laughs> Things just got kind of serious there, sorry. <laughs> if the people who wrote Scream 5 are listening to this, you better do some rewrites and refilming real quick. Well, Mindy Courtney Cox did say... Not be happy. When they wrapped, Courtney Cox did say that she thought Wes Craven would be very proud of what they did. So I'm hoping that means that Gail and Sydney at least survive. And let's be honest, Dewey too. We'll see. All right, Mindy, what movie's next? All right. Next, we're going to talk about another film that we are very anxiously, anxiously awaiting to come out this fall. Hopefully, please, please, please let it happen finally. But we're going to talk about the original Candyman from 1992 uh, in honor of the new Candyman movie being released, hopefully on August 27th. Uh, we wanted to discuss trivia from the original film because, of course, there's a ton of B trivia we need to talk about. <laughs> Um, while shooting the climax in Candyman, Tony Todd had live bees put in his mouth with only a mouth guard to keep them from going down his throat. Nope. <laughs> nope. Couldn't do it. No. I hate bugs. I, this, I was freaked out reading that sentence. Uh, <laughs> he also negotiated a bonus of $1,000 for every bee sting he suffered during the filming. He was stung 23 times. Although another report says Tony Todd was stung by bees 26 times during the filming of all three Candyman movies. Personally, I think... $1,000 is way too little and Tony Todd needs to renegotiate, but that's just my own <laughs> opinion. 
The bees were bred specifically for the movie Candyman. They needed to make sure that the bees were only 12 hours old so that they looked like mature bees, but their stinger wouldn't be powerful enough to do any real damage. I'm sorry, I really don't like bugs and this is freaking me out. And do you want me to weird. read this part? <laughs> <laughs> no, she has to read it. It's fine. No, it's interesting, but I just am picture. Oh, uh, anyway, <laughs> that's my reaction. Uh, but moving on, uh, Virginia Madsen had to get up close and personal with those bees, a fact that almost forced her to pass on the role. I hear you, girl. Uh, when first asked to do the role, she said, well, I can't. I'm allergic to bees. Director Bernard Rose said, no, you're not allergic to bees. You're just afraid. So Madsen had to go to UCLA and get tested because he didn't believe her. She was tested for every kind of venom. And as it turned out, Madsen was far more allergic to wasps. So Rose said, quote, we'll just have paramedics there. It'll be fine, unquote. So they had a bee wrangler on set and he pretty much told everyone you can't freak out around the bees or be nervous or swat at them it would just aggravate them they used baby bees on manson which can still sting but are less likely to when they put the bees on her she said quote it was crazy because they have fur they felt like little q-tips roaming around on me then you have pheromones on you so they're all in love with you and think you're a giant queen. I really just had to go into this Zen sort of place and the takes were very short. What took the longest was getting the bees off of us. They had this tiny quote bee vacuum, which wouldn't harm the bees. After this scene where the bees were all over my face and my head, it took both Tony and I 45 minutes just to get the bees off. That's when it became difficult to sit still. It was cool, though. I felt like a total badass doing it, unquote. Oh, my God. That is like my worst nightmare. And Virginia Madsen, you may be my new favorite hero because holy shit, I can't believe you did that. All right, Minnie, I think you need to go to your Zen place now after reading that. <laughs> I was like legitimately like that was real anxiety in my voice reading that. That was. Oh, anyway, please continue, Sharon. All right. Well, Eddie Murphy was considered for the title role, but oh. supposedly was deemed too short at five foot nine. Instead, <laughs> they chose Tony Todd for his height at six foot five. But more realistically, as Murphy was one of the biggest stars around that time, the Candyman team probably just could not afford him. In the DVD commentary, one of the producers, Alan Poole, said that if Virginia Madsen had been unavailable, the part of Helen would have most likely gone to the then-unknown Sandra Bullock. Hmm. The movie Candyman is based on The Forbidden, a short story written by Clive Barker. The Forbidden was originally published in the magazine Fantasy Tales. Then in volume five of Barker's short fiction anthology series, The Books of Blood. While Barker is an executive producer on Candyman, the film was written and directed by fellow Brit Bernard Rose, who had previously made the acclaimed 1988 horror film Paper House, which I have not seen. Me neither. Um, hmm. You have to check that one out. Put it uh, on the list. Put it on the list. <laughs> there you go. Uh, at Rose's suggestion, the setting was changed from Barker's hometown of Liverpool to Chicago. 
One element of the film that did not come from Barker's short story is when Helen and Bernadette, played by Virginia Madsen and Casey Lemons, discover that the design of the apartment's medicine cabinet made it a possible point of entry for an intruder. While researching the film, Bernard Rose was inspired by a news article from the Chicago Reader titled, They Came In Through the Bathroom Mirror, A Murder in the Projects, about a woman named Ruthie Mae McCoy who was murdered in her apartment in 1987. She was living in the Chicago Housing Authority project known as ABLA Projects. She lived in one of seven 15-story brown Y-shaped towers named the Grace Abbott Homes, the most dangerous of all the buildings in ABLA. Her killers came in through her bathroom mirror and shot her to death in her apartment. And despite her frantic calls to 911, that people were coming in through her bathroom, the police did very little to respond with help. And it's really a heartbreaking story. And there's Mm. a lot more details that we could go into. um, But that would be an entire episode in itself. So I'm not going to get into all that now. But um, we've included the link to the article in the show notes. So if you do want to read the story in its entirety, um, you can go ahead and do that. Also, My Favorite Murder also covered the whole story in one of their episodes as well. And they did a very good job. Um, So you can go check that out. Bernard Rose did use the name McCoy as Anne-Marie's last name as an homage. Anne-Marie was Vanessa Williams' character in Candyman. Oh, I didn't realize that. How Mm -hmm. nice. Well, I mean, that's sad, but that was lovely that he did that. Mm -hmm. Um, In Clive Barker's story, The Forbidden, Candyman is described as a pale-skinned man with long blonde hair and brightly colored patchwork clothes. Bernard Rose felt making him a black man descended from slaves would add to the underlying social commentary. Clive Barker approved of all these changes, happily declaring the film to be Bernard Rose's baby. Rose said that the idea always was that Candyman was kind of a romantic figure in sort of the Edgar Allan Poe sense. It's the romance of death. He's a ghost. And he's also the resurrection of something that is kind of unspoken or unspeakable in American history, which is slavery as well. So he's come back and he's haunting what is the new version of the racial segregation in Chicago. That's a great description slash concept. Um, Great as in fascinating and interesting, sad, given the history. I should clarify. During pre-production, Candyman's producers began to worry that the film might draw criticism for being racist, given that its villain was black and it was largely set in the infamous, now no longer there, Cabrini Green housing project. Rose said, quote, I had to go and have a whole set of meetings with the NAACP because the producers were so worried. And what they said to me when they'd read the script was, why are we even having this meeting? You know, this is just good fun. Their argument was, why shouldn't a black actor be a ghost? Why shouldn't a black actor play Freddy Krueger or Hannibal Lecter? If you're saying that they can't be, it's really perverse. This is a horror movie. Hell yeah. (laughs) But not everyone agreed with those sentiments. In a 1992 story in the Chicago Tribune, some high-profile black filmmakers expressed their disappointment that the film seemed to perpetuate 
several racist stereotypes. Director Carl Franklin, who directed Out of Time and Devil in a Blue Dress, said, There's no question that this film plays on white middle-class fears of black people. It unabashedly uses racial stereotypes and destructive myths to create shock. I found it hokey and unsettling. It didn't work for me because I don't share those fears, buy into those myths. And Reginald Hudlin, who directed House Party, Boomerang, and Marshall, described the film as worrisome, though he didn't want to speak on the record about his specific issues with the film. So this is my own little aside here. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why I think everyone is so excited about the new Candyman film. Because for one, it's directed by Nia DaCosta, a black female. Mm -hmm. And she's also one of the writers, along with Jordan Peele. Fuck yeah. And I personally cannot wait to see their vision of this film and what direction they're going to take it in. And, you know, how they, they made this through the lens of a black person instead mm-hmm. of a white British man, <laughs> um, you know, but um, I've purposely avoided watching any trailers or teasers because I want to go into this movie completely cold. But I'm, yeah, super excited to see uh, their vision of Candyman. And finally, the scene where Candyman's hook burst through Helen's bathroom cabinet was set up without Virginia Madsen's knowledge. So her reaction of terror and shock are real. And apparently she ran screaming from the set. And speaking of the hook, the blacksmith refused to let the production team use one of his hooks in the film. They specifically commissioned him to create Candyman's hook for the movie. But once the blacksmith learned the film was a Clive Barker adaptation, he refused to let them have the prop because of his devout religious convictions. And I'm just going to leave that one right there. Um, But Mindy, speaking of devout religious convictions, what movie are we talking about next? We're going to move on to Carrie, but really, really quick before we do. I heard I heard that story, but I heard he had a hook on his foot. (laughs) Old school 80s joke, people. But we're going to go to 1976. Meatballs reference. Yeah. For all you meatballs fans out there. I fucking that love that. That one's for you. She shoots, she scores. That's right. right. But, yeah, speaking of devout religious convictions, let's talk about the original Carrie from 1976. This was actually the first Stephen King novel adapted into a movie, which I did not know until prior to this episode, really. Um, while speaking at a book event in Fort Myers, Florida in 2010, King recalled that he was paid... J- just $2,500 for the rights to the movie for Carrie, which may seem like a pittance, especially by today's standards, but he has no regrets. King said, I was fortunate to have that happen to my first book, oh, which his yeah. first book as well. Yeah. Damn. Carrie was a major box office hit for United Artists grossing over 33 million in the US from a 1.8 million investment after reading how much the movie grossed king might have had some regrets had he been a one book wonder but luckily he's done okay for himself he's not going to bed hungry <laughs> 
Kings, I would, I, stu- I would still be mad though. I'd be like, you know, can we revisit that twenty five hundred dollars <laughs> that yeah. was originally given? I wonder if he's ever gotten any sort of like residuals or anything beyond that. I wonder, but now he has his own personal fantastic filmmaker in the body of Mike Flanagan. So I don't like I like we said, I, I think he's doing okay. But yeah, I might have been a little pissed after the fact. <laughs> um, King's idea for Carrie came from several personal experiences. He got the idea for Carrie while working in a laundry. Some of the characters, like Carrie's religious fanatical mother, were based on people who worked there with him. And the character of Carrie is based on a composite of two girls Stephen King observed while attending grade school and high school. Of one of them, King recalled, she was a very peculiar girl who came from a very peculiar family. Her mother wasn't a religious nut like the mother in Carrie. She was a game nut, a sweepstakes nut, who subscribed to magazines for people who entered contests. (laughs) The girl had one change of clothes for the entire school year, and all the other kids made fun of her. Aw, that poor girl. Right? The ending of the movie is different from the ending of King's novel, and in fact, King has said he likes the ending in the movie better than the ending of his own book. Mm, I wonder how the book ends. I have not read Carrie. Again, that one's been a minute since I've read as well. But yeah, that ending of the movie still fucking gets me no matter how many times I see it. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the actors in Carrie. So according to Piper Laurie, who plays Carrie's mom, she honestly thought her character was too over the top fanatical to be taken seriously. Brian De Palma, who directed Carrie had to take her to the side and personally tell her it was a horror film and not a black comedy as she thought it was. Even so, she would constantly burst out into laughter between takes because not only was her characterization and wardrobe laughable in her eyes, but the dialogue itself was humorous for her. I want to see those outtakes. Totally. Where can we find those outtakes? To this day... She still refers to and maintains that Carrie is a black comedy. (laughs) Well, you know, nothing is ever too good for Catherine Martell. So I could see her laughing at those moo-moos she had to wear, for sure, in the movie. That's all I'm saying. Nancy Allen, who plays Chris, claims that she never realized her character was going to be so evil until she saw the finished film. She thought she and John Travolta were playing such self-centered, bickering morons that they were in the film for comic relief. What the fuck is wrong with these people? (laughs) Meanwhile, Sissy Spacek was getting all method with it. And while preparing for her character, she isolated herself from the rest of the ensemble, decorated her dressing room with heavy religious iconography, and studied Gustave Dore's illustrated Bible. She studied the body language of people being stoned for their sins. And she started... Or ended every scene in one of those positions and even slept in her bloody clothes for three days while filming the prom scene in order to keep continuity. Whoa. I love that Nancy Allen and Piper Laurie are all like, what a wacky comedy we're in. Meanwhile, Sissy Spacek is like Saint Maud in her dressing room, walking around with nails in her shoes and setting herself on fire while screaming Bible verses. 
For real. That's so fucked up to me that they didn't realize that this was a horror movie. I'm sorry. I know. Because clearly when you're watching it, it's a horror movie. It's not a black comedy. Nancy Allen, especially given the climax of the movie, like, oh, that's funny. Let's let's do bad shit to the poor sad girl. Like, what the fuck? Anyway. And Piper Laurie is absolutely terrifying as the mother. Yeah, her performance is utterly fantastic which makes it even funnier that she thought it was funny (laughs) this is blowing my mind this episode is blowing my mind um (laughs) adding to her mother's psychotic character is the fact that none of the bible passages in the film are real which is also awesome to me for example she quotes genesis chapter 3 to say that sexuality is evil That chapter is actually the story of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit. The Bible doesn't say anything. The mother says it does, which is a metaphor for religion in general. Sorry, I didn't say that. In a 2010 interview with the AV Club, PJ Souls said that Steven Spielberg often came to the set at Brian De Palma's invitation because De Palma told him that there were a lot of cute girls down here. <laughs> Souls said that Spielberg asked out most of the women on the set, Souls included, and Amy Irving was the only one who accepted. Irving and Spielberg were married from 1985 to 1989 and had one son together. Hmm. Interesting uh, game you got there, Spielberg. <laughs> Finally, we had to end our Carrie trivia with this story. George Lucas and Brian De Palma held a joint audition for Carrie and Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. There is a long-standing rumor that originally Sissy Spacek was cast as Princess Leia and Carrie Fisher as, well, Carrie. But when Fisher refused to appear in nude scenes and Spacek was willing to do them, they switched parts. However, Fisher refuted the story in a Premiere Magazine article called The Force Wasn't With Them about actors who auditioned unsuccessfully for Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. That article quoted Fisher as saying, Not only do I love being nude, I would have been nude then. But anyway, it's total bullshit. Meaning that Fisher refused to play Carrie. That's hilarious. God, we love you, Carrie Fisher. We miss you so much. Not only do I love being nude. That should be a t-shirt. Dude, totally. Well, <laughs> Sharon, what uh, what coming of age favorite of ours are you going to talk about next? <laughs> oh, well, some, was... some girls watched, you know, they read the Babysitter's Club books and they watched... I don't know what kids watched Punky Brewster when we were in. I don't know. But we I watched, watched Punky Brewster. No, I did, too. But we watched this probably more. Probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was super excited to look up trivia for this next movie because it's one of my all time faves. And I didn't actually know any of the behind the scenes stories from the film. But we're going to be talking about some Lost Boys trivia. Uh, This movie came out in 1987, and some of the most famous scenes from the movie were filmed at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. Every year at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, this film is screened as part of a parks-free summer movie series. Beachgoers can bring outdoor furniture, food and drink, and watch the movie after sunset. All right, now that I know this, this is going on my bucket list. 
I need to do this. And really quickly, I just have to say that Spencer and I were actually driving up the coast of California and we're just looking for like random spots to stop at. And he was like, oh, I have a friend who lives in Santa Cruz and says it's a really cool town. So we pulled off at the Santa Cruz exit and we saw the boardwalk Mm -hmm. and we parked and we got out and it was like in the daytime in the middle of the week um, after Labor Day. So it was pretty much empty. And as we're like walking on the beach and I like look back at the amusement park and everything, I was like, holy shit. I whipped out my phone. I was like, is this where they film the Lost Boys? I We had no idea. We like randomly ended up there. And I was like, oh my God. So I like did a quick Google search and sure enough, I'm like, holy shit, this is where they filmed the fucking Lost Boys. And I took a picture and I texted it to you, Mindy. And I was yep. like, guess where we're at? <laughs> well, and it was Sharon standing on this absolutely deserted beach. So I had like no context. I, I the Lost Boys was not the first thing that came to mind. It was just really funny because she's like all excited. Guess where we're at? And I'm like. A deserted beach? I don't... And then when she told me, then I could see, like, the, you know, fairground in the background, and then I got it, but it was just hilarious, because, like, the picture you sent me was so nondescript, and I was like, what am I missing here? I know. I just couldn't believe we were there randomly. I don't blame you, dude. I don't blame you. I would have done the same. Oh, but yeah, now now that I know um, where they actually filmed it, and the fact that I was actually there, but, um, yeah... Not around the time when they did the free screening, apparently. And not to keep reiterating this, but I would love to do this, too. So everybody fucking get vaccinated so that we can all travel freely and live freely. Well, as close to freely as we can, because, yes, I absolutely want to watch this on the beach where they shot the movie. A hundred percent. Yeah, people. Jerks. (laughs) Sorry. Just kidding. All right. Um, No, really. Get vaccinated. Go ahead, Sharon. (laughs) So Santa Cruz where the fictional town of Santa Carla actually takes place, was once plagued with the reputation of being the murder capital of the world, which is referenced to in the movie, in one of the opening scenes. I'm sure you all remember, if you've seen this film, you see the Santa Carla billboard welcome sign, and on the (laughs) back of it, someone spray-painted, murder capital of the world. All those damn vampires. Santa Cruz had this horrible nickname for a while because of a series of brutal murders by three different very disturbed men in the early 70s. Because of John Lindley Frazier, Herbert Mullen, and Edward Kemper, Santa Cruz endured 28 murders over a 30-month period between 1970 and 1973. Yikes. The Santa Cruz Chamber of Commerce was not keen on reliving the murder capital moniker, which had been hung on Santa Cruz during the serial killer's rampages in the 70s, even if this time (laughs) it was because of all the damn vampires. This was Corey Haim and Corey Feldman's first film together, which marked the start of a popular 80s trend, The Two Corys, in which Feldman and Haim starred together in a number of teenage films. Um, I should also mention that Feldman and Haim were my and Sharon's first boyfriends early on, although I harbored (laughs) a very secret crush on Corey Haim because Sharon thought I liked Corey Feldman better, but that's neither here nor there. Um, 
With that being said, Corey Feldman, who plays Edgar Frog in The Lost Boys, almost wasn't in the movie. At the time, Corey struggled with drug abuse at a young age and showed up to work coming down from a cocaine binge. Director Joel Schumacher was very upset that Corey kept dozing off and was unable to continue filming, so he fired him but hired him back the next day after Corey apologized and swore to come to work prepared from then on, which he did. Yeah, that's your boyfriend, Mindy. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Kiefer Sutherland was originally reluctant to star in the film until he heard that Joel Schumacher had lined up In Excess and Jimmy Barnes to sing some of the songs on the soundtrack. Kiefer had spent a summer in Australia when he was a child and became fans of their music. And apparently Jim Carrey was considered for the role of David because he previously portrayed a vampire in the film Once Bitten from 1985, which I have seen and is a very different movie from The Lost Boys. And I'm really glad Kiefer Sutherland got that role. I could not see Jim Carrey as David. Uh Once Bitten is a comedy. So, yeah. yeah. Also, Um, that song by NXS and Jimmy Barnes, Good Times. Dude. Dude, that is a jam. That is (laughs) so good. That whole soundtrack. Yeah. Um, Fred Gwynn, a.k.a. the original Herman Munster, and also Jed from Pet Cemetery, um, rest in peace, was considered for the part of Max, which ended up being played by Edward Herman. The Munsters is actually referenced twice in the film. Once when Michael first goes to hang out with the vampires, there's a Munsters poster behind David. And then there's the infamous line, it's the attack of Eddie Munster. But wait, Edward Herman also played Herman Munster in the TV movie, Here Come the Munsters. So we go full circle. The whoa. name, whoa. <laughs> Mind blown. Herman Munster, Edward Herman, Herman Munster. Conspiracy. Eddie Munster, know. Edward Herman. Eddie, never mind. <laughs> we could do this all day. The names of the Frog Brothers, Edgar and Allen, portrayed by Corey Feldman and Jameson Newlander, are a reference, of course, to Edgar Allan Poe, the well-known writer of horror fiction. And according to the writers of the film, the character name of Lucy, played by Diane Wiest, was chosen to reflect Lucy Westenra from Bram... Stoker's Dracula. And Mindy had to say that very slowly so she could get it out correct. Shut Good your job. fucking mouth. <laughs> At least I said it. You got it. Uh, I got this. The Lost Boys could have been a... Sorry, that was funny, Spencer. You're leaving that in. Yeah, right. we are. I think that's what I do. The Lost Boys could have been a very different movie from the movie that we know it at. The Lost... Sorry, I'm just like still laughing. <laughs> You're welcome. The Lost Boys could have been a very different movie from the movie we know it as today. The original screenplay written by Jan Fisher and James Jeremiah's. Sure. And James Jeremiah's was originally about a bunch of goony type fifth and sixth grade vampires with the Frog Brothers being chubby eight-year-old Cub Scouts and Star being a boy instead of a love interest. Pass. (laughs) Right. Uh, The original inspiration came from James, who was caught up in the notion that Peter Pan could fly, visited Wendy and her brothers at night, and never grew old. 
The simple notion that Peter Pan was a vampire was the genesis for the story. Uh. In the first draft of the script, the character of David was originally named Peter, and other characters also had names from the Peter Pan story. In the final draft, many name changes were made, but originally the two brothers were Michael and John. John later changed to Sam, and the mother's name was Wendy. The most obvious nod to the pan story is the dog Nanook, inspired by the character Nana the dog. I love Nanook. The grandfather character was never a part of the original story, but later created in the draft by Jeffrey Bohm, who was hired to do the final rewrite. Joel Schumacher hated the original idea. I wonder why. (laughs) And told the producers he would only sign on if he can change them to teenagers, as he thought it would be much sexier and more interesting. Thank you, Joel Schumacher. No shit, right? (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. The song Cry Little Sister was actually a huge hit, as Mindy said. The whole soundtrack is great. So good. Uh, that song written by Gerard McMahon and Michael Manieri. I'll sure. go with that. Uh, specifically for the 1987 soundtrack, the song with lyrics like, Black house will rock. Blind boys don't lie. Okay, we are going to do a <laughs> Patreon-only rendition of this, you and me. No, we're not. Yeah, we are. Keep going. <laughs> Apologies. Every time I sing, I have to apologize. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. little sister. (laughs) All right, moving on. But anyways, that song actually reached number 15 on the Billboard 200 list and has been sampled by several rappers, including Eminem, Jim Jones, Lil B, Mob Deep, and Joe Budden. Not Joe Biden. (laughs) Joe Budden. (laughs) That's Joe Biden's like rapper pot pseudonym. (laughs) Smokes a lot of blunts and he becomes Joe Budden. I could see it. I could totally see it. Oh my God, I wish that was true. Oh, sorry. I have to. That's a different Jim Jones, right? Yeah, so so not. Well, he was. The the other one was dead by the time this movie came out, wasn't he? Yes. Long dead. All right. Before we move on, how can we not talk about this guy? Yeah, 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 yeah. He may be the most popular character in the entire film, credited as beach concert star, but most of us know him as Sexy Saxman, played by Timmy Capello. He's a musician who trained at the New England Conservatory of Music after dropping out of school at age 15. Capello also trained under jazz pianist Lenny Tristano before going on to perform with numerous musicians in the 80s, including Peter Gabriel, Carly Simon, and Tina Turner, who he toured with for 15 years. Shit. The two-hour acting gig in The Lost Boys became a lasting part of Capello's life and earned him a place in pop culture history to the point that he was parodied in one of Saturday Night Live's digital shorts (laughs) from 2010. Who played the sexy sax man? None other than a sexy John Hamm. Of course. Who is covered in KY Jelly in one scene. And there's also a funny cameo by Jenny Slate in the skit as well. We will include the link to the digital short in our show notes because you do not want to miss this. <laughs> I also like the fact that you were like, we would 
you know, we would before moving on, how can we not talk about this guy? And I was like, yeah, because I knew exactly who you were going to talk about. That's how much of like a, a presence this guy has. Did you so, watch okay. the uh, the uh, Saturday Night Live digital short? I have, but uh, I do think we should make sure we well, you've already said we will, but we absolutely need to include that link in the show notes because yeah it's so well worth it it's hilarious (laughs) um so now we have just a bunch of random horror movie trivia kind of like a tidbits if you will Um, trivia tidbits trivia (laughs) tidbit that's hard to say trivia tidbits the first one being that tim burton was in contention to direct gremlins what There was a lot of buzz surrounding Tim Burton after the success of his short film Frankenweenie, so much so that Steven Spielberg considered him to direct Gremlins. But the fact that Burton had yet to direct a feature film worked against him, and the gig was given to Joe Dante. Mm -hmm. A year later, Burton released his first theatrical feature, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which is awesome as well. Child's Play was inspired by a real event. Yes, you heard that right. In 1909, Key West painter and author Robert Eugene Otto claimed that one of his family's servants placed a voodoo curse on his childhood toy, Robert the Doll. That is the worst name for a toy ever. And it's the scariest toy you've ever seen. Supposedly, the doll would mysteriously move from room to room, knock furniture over, and conduct conversations with Otto. Robert the Doll... <laughs> Maybe he dated Annabelle the doll. Um, but Robert the doll was left in the attic until Otto's death in 1974 when new owners moved into his Florida home. The new family also claimed mysterious activities would happen in the house connected to the doll. Today, Robert the doll is on display at the custom house and old post office in Key West, Florida. We will have pictures of Robert the doll on our Patreon page if you want to see how truly terrifying this doll is. We will also post pics on our social media pages. I should point out that I actually don't think that Robert the doll is in Florida. Uh, funny enough, he's been on Zach Baggins' show about his haunted museum because, of course, Zach Baggins from Ghost Adventures has a haunted museum in uh, Vegas where he takes items like Robert the doll and houses them kind of like um the real life Ed Lorraine Warren used to do and I'm pretty sure I've seen Robert the doll at his museum so Robert might have made the trek from Florida to Vegas we'll have to look into that but well this article might have been written before that happened he's scary regardless so an actual witch was hired to help make the craft more authentic Uh, To make sure that the depiction of Wicca in the film The Craft was as close to real life as it could be, the filmmakers hired Pat Devon as a consultant. Uh, Devon is a member of one of the largest and oldest Wiccan religious organizations in the United States, the Covenant of the Goddess. And at the time, she was the first officer of the group's Southern California Local Council. Devin played a big role in the production process and at times worked directly with the actresses. She said, a lot of my suggestions were acted upon and virtually all of my suggestions were given careful consideration, even if they didn't all end up in the final version of the film. Wow, good on them for staying true to the topic, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Steven Spielberg thought his DVD copy of Paranormal Activity was haunted. As the urban legend goes, Spielberg, whose DreamWorks Studios was considering distributing Paranormal Activity, took a DVD of the movie home to watch, but then got freaked out when the door to his bedroom locked by itself. Uh, It's not something the marketing department just came up with before releasing the movie, Spielberg famously carried the DVD to work in a trash bag because he thought it was haunted. And we all know how much ghosts hate trash bags. (laughs) Uh, Despite the shock, Spielberg actually loved the movie and suggested a new ending that was used in the theatrical release. Oh, wow. Because there were three, actually. But interesting. In Evil Dead 2... You can see Freddy Krueger's glove from A Nightmare on Elm Street. It's hanging above the door in the tool shed. Whoa. I'm going to look for that. Me too. Interesting. The original title thought of for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was Head Cheese? Uh, T-shirt. T-shirt. We need to make a T-shirt. That just does not have the same ring to it. Nope. Nope. Good, 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 Good decision there. I think we should make a t-shirt that says horse talk whore on the back and then head cheese on the front. (laughs) Um, Jason Voorhees from Friday the 13th was originally going to be named Josh. (laughs) Sorry, that makes me laugh. Also not just does not have the same ring to it. I'm sorry. Head head cheese. Not scary. Josh. No, no one's scared of a Josh. (laughs) Final Destination is based on an idea for an episode of The X-Files that was never made. Those movies are like my kryptonite. I fucking love, I'll watch them every time they're on TV. When the main characters of Children of the Corn are driving, you can see a copy of Stephen King's Night Shift on the dashboard. This is the book where the Children of the Corn short story was actually published. Oh, I'm going to have to look for that, too. That's some meta shit right there. Stephen King, he, yeah, he is real sneaky with that meta shit. He is. All right. And finally, E.T. was originally written as a horror film. In the late 70s, Steven Spielberg was developing a script called Watch the Skies. Spielberg's idea was based on an allegedly true account of a family terrorized by malevolent aliens on their Kentucky farm in 1955, which I need to now research this and get the whole story, and maybe we'll do it on a future episode. Mm, I like that idea. But Spielberg went to John Sayles, writer of the creature features Piranha and Alligator, to turn his treatment into a feature-length script, changing the title to Night Skies along the way due to a rights issue. You said doo-doo. I was just going to say that. So mature, guys. Way to be mature. Shut up. <laughs> um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre's Toby Hooper was the first choice to direct. Wow. Okay. Anyways. Yeah, there's a, yeah we won't even get into that, but I had the same reaction. Yeah. Was, this is going to be a way longer conversation, but I'm going to keep it short. Future episode. However, as legendary special effects creator Rick Baker began to design the group of evil aliens, Spielberg began to question whether Night Sky's dark concept was the right choice. He also developed a fondness for the subplot in the script that concerned a benevolent member of the alien race that formed a friendship with the targeted family's young autistic son. 
Spielberg then sat down with screenwriter and friend Melissa Matheson to create a story that would first be called E.T. and Me before it was changed to the title everyone knows now. The Night Skies project was abandoned and Spielberg decided to direct E.T., not just produce it. Elements of Night Skies also made their way into Poltergeist, which Spielberg did indeed hire Toby Cooper to direct. Um, I actually kind of want to see Watch the Skies or Night Skies or whatever it's called. Um, I think that sounds really cool. Also, I always hated E.T. <laughs> because I thought it was so sad and it, it just made me bawl my eyes out as a child and I hated that film. Um, I think I would have liked it much better if it was a horror movie. And I'm not going to lie, like two years ago when they did the quote unquote sequel holiday commercial. I don't know if you saw that, but it was um, for some, it was before it was in BC time. So, you know, before COVID and it was, it was Henry Thomas in it, but he's obviously an adult with his own family and E.T. returns and it made me sob again, but it was beautiful. It was beautifully done. But yeah, that I will never probably watch E.T. ever again for that reason. And for the record, I'm in love with Henry Thomas because of Cloak and Dagger, not E.T. <laughs> All right. Well, fuck off, E.T. No, he's cute, but just don't make me cry. All right. We'll cut that line. All right. All right. <laughs> Well, that is it. Thank you all for listening to us. This was a lot of fun researching the trivia on these films. So we will definitely be doing future episodes of just, you know, entirely all movie trivia. You can write to us at horrorstalkhorror at gmail.com and let us know what movies you would like us to cover in future trivia episodes. You can also write to us with any episode ideas, recommendations on what to watch, if you want to share any ghost stories, alien stories, true crime stories, creepy stories, whatever you want us to read on our show, please write to us. We love hearing from you. We do love hearing from you. Please also subscribe to us, rate and review us on your streaming platform of choice. Um, It truly does help us get more exposure and kind of raises us in the ranks so more folks can know about our show and listen to us. If you're able to, please join our Patreon to get early access to episodes you can have like a one-up on everybody else and be cool uh you'll see exclusive posts and maybe get some fun stuff sent to you in the mail like the snail mail kind not just email please be kind to each other be safe get vaccinated so sharon and i can go out to santa cruz and watch the lost boys on the beach like it was intended yeah but thank you as always for listening to us and putting up with our goofiness and as always Thanks Thanks for for getting getting creepy creepy with with us. us. Sharon, you want a beer? Uh, Oh, my God.